0: All right, so Ecclesiastes is where we're at. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, so go ahead and turn to that. And this week we will get into the text, I promise. Ecclesiastes 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Ecclesiastes 1.1, 1, 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, toward the south, and then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind remains, uh, returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, and the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this is it new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So I want to quickly recap what we talked about um, last week, and I won't do this every time, but it's important to have a reminder as we begin looking at Ecclesiastes, what we're looking at. Last week we went through the background information of the, uh, of the book, we saw that Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. It's, it's meant to impart wisdom to the reader. At a micro level, we saw that there are many subgenres within Ecclesiastes. There are these pithy proverbs, there are poems, there are parallelisms, rhetorical questions, a large body of autobiography, and sections of reflection that are performed by the author as he goes through his life, and as he looks back over his life, he pauses and he takes time to reflect on the things that he has done and the things that he has uh, uh, gleaned from those. We looked at the author. The author is, of course, Solomon, and the authorial testimony here in Ecclesiastes is that he is the son of David. He possesses vast amounts of wisdom and riches and the king of Jerusalem. So of course, all of this points to the author being Solomon. And I made the case last week that this book, Ecclesiastes, serves as a type of repentance narrative for Solomon. It reads as a man who is at the end of his life and he's pausing and he, he's reflecting upon all that's happened to him, his pursuits, his passions all of his earthly achievements. And he notices that those things are fleeting, those things he calls vanity. And we saw that even though he is the most wise, his sin was very great. It was Solomon who erected the high places in Israel, which ultimately led all of Israel into judgment. I said over and over again, as you read through the kings of Israel, God often brings up that they may have been a good king, but they did not destroy the high places. Those were the same high places that Solomon built. So this, I think, is Solomon's realization that he has sinned greatly throughout uh, his life, and now he seeks to alert others to the fleeting passions of life, of this world, and to turn his readers God. We looked at what Ecclesiastes is about. That, that there is a war within Solomon that is within all of us between our wisdom, our earthly wisdom, and the wisdom of God. Life can be incredibly perplexing and frustrating which can lead us at times to, to think that the things that happen in our lives are, are meaningless. There, there's no point to them. But from God's point of view, there is nothing that's meaningless. There is nothing that happens that doesn't have purpose. Everything that happens in our lives as Christians is for our growth and holiness, our growth in love for God and reliance upon Him. We looked at three points given by an author uh, named Benjamin Shaw concerning what we ought to learn about Ecclesiastes. First was that life is brief. Life is fleeting. It's always escaping us. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. And it's really that brevity of life that makes what we believe and what we do crucial while we're here on this earth in this fallen world. Second, is that we do live in a fallen world. It's because of the fall that life is tough, that life frustrates us and perplexes us. And then third, that it is possible to have joy in a fallen world. And the sources of joy offered by Solomon, God, who's the fount of all joy and hope, and the simple and ordinary things in life. That's not where we typically look to find joy. We look for the the big moments of life, the big conquests that we make in life. But Solomon points to the ordinary, mundane things of life. So with this this in mind, let's begin looking at the text. In verses 1 through 3, The wisdom of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? So here in verses 1 through 3, you have Solomon's premise. This is what he's setting up. And then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to give the proof. Here's why I think this. And in 8 through 11, he's going to talk about the problem which he faces and the problem which we all face. But here in verses 1 through 3, he begins his search for the meaning of life. It's in these verses that we find out who he is, what he has found to be true, and the important question that he asks himself. And we've already noted in verse 2 that, that this is the theme of the book. He, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So this is what he has discovered. But what is this all in which he speaks? What, what is he talking about when he says all things are vanity? Does he literally mean everything that we do on earth is vanity? I don't think so. Rather, it is those things that are done in service of self and the world that are vanity, that, that are ultimately meaningless. I believe this is what Solomon is, is reflecting on as he looks back over his life. Those things which he pursued all of his life, the things that he took great pride in, and the things that he, he enjoyed on this earth would all pass away. So he asks himself, what advantage does man have on this earth? What advantage do I have? What have these things profited for me? What profit is it for us to focus on the things that will pass away if the motivations for those pursuits are not eternal? In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, J. Adams points out that treating life and existence here as having lasting value is a colossal mistake and sin of those who live as if the world, together with its human achievements, is of permanent worth. This, brief, uh, this belief is the very essence of worldliness to toil and to worry over the matters that pertain to the present order of things as if they were permanent, giving one's life to their pursuit is the supreme folly. So he's saying here that the supreme folly that we can, that we can make in this life is to treat temporal, worldly, earthly things as having eternal value. That is the supreme folly of man. If any one man had the resources to pursue every passion of life, every experience, every interest, anything he wanted, it would have been Solomon. As the king of of Israel, he had full freedom to do whatever he wanted to do, he could pursue every interest on earth, he was not hindered by financial limitations. Yet every pursuit that he put his hand to resulted in frustration. And it calls him to say that all is vanity. All is fleeting. There is nothing that can satisfy my soul. In verse 3, we have another key passage of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And as I've already pointed out, one of the points of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that, that life is brief and we live in a fallen world. And it's important to note that here Solomon uses a phrase that I believe he used 29 times in Ecclesiastes, and it is under the sun. It's used 29 times. There is little doubt that Solomon is solemn to the extent of the life that he lived, he is quite solemn at this point. But it's worth noting that throughout the book, whenever he wrestles with these different passions, the, these pursuits that, that he went after, it's always within the framework of being under the sun. So what does he mean by under the sun? Well, to put it simply, it's to live life with a worldly mindset. It, it's, it's to live life with, worldly goals, in a world that is cursed by the fall. So what, what we really find here in this book is a man who is incredibly pessimistic about the pursuits of man, but he is incredibly optimistic about God and God's purpose. So, so there you have the contrast. He's, he's very pessimistic about the worldly man but very, very optimistic about God, God's providence, and God's will. Another important aspect uh, of this question is its universality. Notice that he doesn't just say, what advantage did I gain from chasing passions and pursuits? He doesn't limit this to himself. Instead, he says, what advantage does man have? Not just man in general, now this is really a question of universal importance to all of us, and one that man has tried to answer for centuries. At a foundational level, the question being proposed is of existential importance. What is the purpose of our being here on Earth? That's a, a question that Solomon is essentially asking What are we to do while we're here on Earth? Is there value in the things that we do on Earth? Do the things that we do benefit us? These are very weighty and important questions, and many philosophers, many men have tried to answer these questions. They've spent their entire lives in pursuit of these uh, answers to these questions some has found the answer uh, in the pursuit of wisdom and solomon's going to talk about the pursuit of wisdom as as being the the greatest good that one can offer humanity Is to pursue wisdom others such as the the hedonists believe that the highest good in life is to do whatever that satisfies your own desires there are materialists who spend their lives amassing wealth and belongings There are fatalists who thinks that it doesn't matter what we do anyway. We're all going to die. Nothing matters, so just do whatever you want to do. As we go throughout this book, we're going to see Solomon inspect each of these worldviews, essentially. And he's going to find all of them as lacking. That's because they are lacking, and they can't satisfy. See, God has set eternity in the heart of man man is made with an eternal mindset and as augustine said our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him the only cure to a restless heart is christ looking at verses four through seven you're going to see the proof given by solomon So you have the premise that all these things are are vanity, and he's going to spend the rest of the book looking at all these different things as being vain pursuits. Here he's going to talk about the proof. Here's why I think that. Here's why I have arrived at this uh, position, looking at verses 4 through 7. It says, "...a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever." Also, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and then toward the north. The wind continues swirling along on its circular courses. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they will flow again. So here he roots his his proof in nature he's comparing two things and who's made in the image of god and the rest of creation the the earth which god had also made and he's looking really at the the general workings of the earth how the earth works in an orderly fashion and the contrast that he's really making is between what is permanent and what is not permanent what is impermanent the time that we have on this earth is very very short and we tend not to think about that especially in our youth we tend to have the attitude that oh, yeah, we'll be around forever and that delusion can carry well into adulthood until you get the first back pain and then you're like oh i don't i don't know it's it gets a little rough but but generations do come, and they, they do go on this earth, and they do so very, very quickly. One generation is born on the earth while another leaves. Uh, John Gill, who is a, a Baptist uh, commentator, said of this short time on earth, that this, this shows that man can have no profit of all his labor under the sun because of its short continuance. As soon as almost he has got anything by his labor, he must leave it. Not only particular persons, but families, nations, kingdoms, even all the inhabitants of the world that are contemporaries live together in the same age in a certain period of time. These gradually go off by death till the whole generation is consumed as the generation of the Israelites in the wilderness were. So uh, I read this and I thought of, of a man who, who, put, who puts his hand to, to, his, to his work, to his job, and he labors tirelessly to the bone, working his hands to the bone. He saves every penny, he hoards every dollar, only to arrive at a point where he thinks, now I can rest and I can enjoy the fruits of my work, and then he dies in his old age and enjoys it. The things that we amass in this world will soon we will soon leave for another to enjoy. And Solomon mentions that later on. So what is the folly of the man who works himself to the bone he hoards up all of his money, and he gets to the end of his life to enjoy it, and he can't. What, what is his folly? And he didn't take time to enjoy life as he lived. There's nothing wrong with a savings account. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with working. God created us to be workers. But if that is the pursuit, and if there is no eternal mindset behind it, it is vanity. Solomon goes on here to mentions the wind and the seas. Uh, the wind first blows this way and that, to the north and to the south, and it returns from where it came. But then again, compared to man, man is not so. Man passes by like the wind and then does not pass back, does not come back, by the seas they constantly the rivers they constantly go into the sea they flow into the sea and the seas are never full water evaporates then from the heavens rain comes down and fills the streams which again fills the rivers this cyclical motion but of man nothing will last each generation will rise to do its work on earth, and then we will pass away to leave it for another to enjoy. Think of the great cities in history. These, these colossal monuments of human achievement, of human ingenuity, civilizations that thought would last forever, but then after a few generations, it crumbles. What about the great leaders that, that we often read about in history? Where did their pursuit lead them? Where are they now? They're not on the earth. Their nations are gone to a large extent. They were renowned while they were on the earth for their riches, like, like Solomon, for his, rich, for his riches, for his, his power, his wisdom. But then he is no more on earth. See, there are men that rise to prominence, to great stature, only to suffer the same fate as the common man. Solomon suffered the same fate as every man will suffer, which is death. Nations that were once thought unbreakable crumble in time. So it is this proof that Solomon offers to support his claim that. That the passions and the pursuits of this world, if done with a worldly mindset, are fleeting, they're transient, they have no eternal significance. You're storing up for something you can't enjoy because you are here today and you're gone tomorrow. That's what Solomon has learned. So looking at verses 8 through 11, you have the, the problem. This it will really set in motion the rest of Ecclesiastes. So you have the, the premise in verses 1 through 3, the proof in 4 through 7, and then the main problem in 8 through 11, and then he's going to look at, at these throughout the book. Continuing on in verse 8 through 11, he says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So beginning here at, at verse 8, he, after setting up the the the, uh, the premise and the proof, it's almost as if he he's wearied by his own words. Like what he just said through verses 1 through 7, just like immediately, as soon as he said them, he's wearied by them. And really, he, he's lamenting here in verse 8 that, he doesn't truly have the words to say, to, to convey what we're trying to, to express. Because it is such a hard teaching for us to, to understand that often people don't get. Jay Adams remarks that it is tiresome to attempt to describe this dynamic in words. The very thoughts that they engender and convey weary a person, meaning that these are very weighty things. This is a, a weighty teaching. This, this is a weighty thing to, to think about, the, 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 the fleeting nature of life. And then Jay Adams continues. He says, what makes it tiresome, of course, is not merely the search for the right words, but the realization that people will not get it. Generation after generation, they repeat the same error. Somehow, persons in each succeeding generation think that they are the exception, that they can beat the system but they can't, and although this part was especially important, the system that they are up against is God's providential plan, which he is working in time. That system is unbeatable. In providence, he orders the world as it is. What God has planned for it will continue as long as man labor under the sun. So, so what he's saying here is that each generation rise up, and they think, no, I'm, I'll be the exception. I'm going to live on this earth. I'm going to, I'm going to be different from those other generations. And nations rise up like that. Nations rise up and say, See what we've left. We're going to be different from this. But what they, what they fail to realize is, as Jay Adams points out, that what they are up against is God's providential plan for history. Has God ever been thwarted? No. What do we know about man? What do we know about ourselves? We always want more, don't we? We are rarely content, though Solomon teaches us uh, intends to teach us that he must be content in God's providence. But now he says that, that the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. And as I read this part, it really stuck out to me. It's like, okay. the, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. Well, what is the point of the eye? And what is the point of the ear? Why do we have eyes and ears? Well, eyes are used to see, right? And the point of the ear is to hear. That's why God created them. He created our eyes to see and our ears to, to hear. But Solomon is saying here that, that in the case of man, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. It's it's as if words are going in, but the the ear cannot be filled. But what of man? What has God created man for? He created the eye to see and the ear to hear. Why did God create man? What is man's chief end? Well, that is the very first question of our Westminster Shorter Catechism or Catechism as well Um, the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever that is why God created man but man just like the eye just like the ear described by Solomon is not content with that purpose It is not enough for man to live as he was created. He must always look for, for other means to find purpose, to, to find meaning that exists apart from the one who created man. I, I really believe, after studying this book, that if a modern man would sit down and read the Bible cover to cover, the book that he would hate most would be Ecclesiastes. I really believe that because it is so offensive to the natural man. It It's so offensive to those who chase transient things, who try to hold on to the things of this world as if they are vitally important. It's it's really the book of Ecclesiastes that, that rips away all diversions from the truth, that You know, man will place before him an untruth and will live according to that untruth. And Ecclesiastes takes that untruth and rips it away and says, this is life. And that is offensive to man. Nothing will satisfy you on this earth if you live for worldly gain. If you do not live for the purpose of of why you were created, if you do not strive to glorify God and to enjoy Him fully while on this earth, you are living a life of vanity. You will never be filled. You will be like the eye and like the the ear that, that consumes but is never full. You always want more and never have enough. But there is one who will give water that will never cause you to thirst. That is what we need to seek. Continuing in verse nine, Solomon says that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. There is—is is there anything of which one might say, "Look here, this is new"? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. So here Solomon is is saying that there is nothing new under the Sun now he doesn't mean that there are no new inventions to be discovered or or new technology advances to be made Abraham didn't have an iPhone right there are things that that are continued uh, uh, to be innovative and to be created so what is he really describing here I think a few things as I as I thought about this came up with a couple of things that aren't new under the Sun How about the labor of humanity? That's not new. His toil and his strife under the sun. That's not unique to one individual. That's a description of all of us, that we all labor, we all toil, and we all strive under the sun in a fallen world. We all share in the hardships of Adam in a fallen world. We we wrestle with thorns and thistles and and briars in our lives. J. Adams remarks that unregenerate sinners and, sadly, saints to the extent that they remain unsanctified, continually commit the same egregiously sinful blunder. They work themselves to death, sometimes literally, for that which has no lasting value. They try to find the greatest good in this life, but it is not found under the sun, only under the sun. Now, I like that little, uh, little phrase that he uses, a little play on words, because he's contracting life under the, the sun, under the, the fallen world, and, and trying to find the good life under the sun. And he says, you're not going to find it under the sun, but under the sun, the S-O-N, the king, you will find these things life will not be meaningless or purposeless he's he's contrasting again permanence and impermanence the yoke of toiling in this world under the sun after that which is fleeting is a very hard work but the yoke of working under the king is very easy and is sweet and you will find pleasure there. Then you have the, the heart of man, something else that, that is not new under the sun. The corruption of the heart is not a new thing. Men following after their own hearts is not novel. Men follow after their own hearts, and that is not a good thing. Humanity's pursuit of corrupt desires and passions are not new. Read the Old Testament. You will see many corruptions, many uh, followings after passions and desires that are completely ungodly, from the beginning. After the fall. Generation after generation, men come and go on this earth, and they commit the same acts as it relates to God. As I mentioned earlier, new philosophies are not usually new. When men abandon the God of Scripture for a different worldview, they're really not coming up with something new. They may use different phrases to describe it. But essentially, the heart of these philosophies is to call something else God and to worship it. Every single philosophy that is worldly has the same goal is to call something else God and worship that thing, instead of the God who created. Example: in humanism, who's God in humanism? Man. And what does man worship in humanism? Man he worships himself. What about the worship of the state? Is that novel? No, that's not novel as well. It is giving what properly belongs to God to to a group of men unworthy of worship. And this is really the core of all worldly philosophies, giving what belongs to God to another. At the core of every philosophy, Fall under the sun is an attempt to shrug off Yahweh, the living God, and live according to what man deems best. What about heresies? What about new heresies? New heresies are rarely new. It's almost always the case that heresies that arise in our contemporary society are repackaged old heresies, updated to serve the modern world. So even heresies are usually not new, which is also why it's important to study and learn from church history. It's because of this that Solomon concludes this section with verse 11, where he says, There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. If we look at our society today, It's quite obvious that humanity does not learn from the past. There is a great resistance to learn from the former things. Sadly, this can even happen to Christians, not just worldly men. We rarely learn from the past. We rarely study the the people who come before us and the, the things that have happened before us And we can be doomed to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. But these things bring up a few questions that I think are vital to understanding Ecclesiastes and life in general. Verses 1 through 11, what we've looked at, sets up the whole book of Ecclesiastes. and, And Solomon will use this as a foundation For his arguments and for everything that he says he's you're going to see he keeps referring back to verses 1 through 11 and we'll continue to look back at verses 1 through 11 because that's what Solomon does but he he continues to, to go back to these as I thought about this I thought okay I've read this is this a biblical worldview what is Solomon placing before us is this a biblical worldview? And what I mean by this is, is Solomon saying that things are truly meaningless or is he answering the fool according to his folly? Well, I think he's doing both, essentially. Uh, to some extent, what he's saying, yes, generations do come and go. The earth does remain forever. Uh, remains for a new generation. Men will not hear that they are going to die, that life is fleeting and transient, and that the things of this earth, it's like I mentioned, it's like grasping at air. You reach out and you try to grab it, try to grab the air, and you can't quite hold on to it. It just escapes you. That is life on this earth. But as to meaninglessness or purposelessness, No. From a biblical worldview, nothing is meaningless, nothing is purposeless. First, as it pertains to meaninglessness, we know that all things come to pass by the sovereign will of God. Literally everything has meaning, because God has decreed it. For Christians, again, all things come to pass to mold us into Christ's image. The the reason Life frustrates us, perplexes us, is to point us to Christ. Even after we are born again, we are continually pointed to Christ. If something frustrates you, God is loving you because He wants you to be conformed to the image of His Son. All things come to pass for the glory of God. So life isn't meaningless, it is fleeting. It is transient, but it is not meaningless. Second, history is not an endless repetition of life. We do not have a deistic God who has created the world, he's wound it up, and he's let go, and we're just constantly doing the the same things, going through the same patterns for eternity. That there is no end, right? It is true that men often make the same mistakes we do, because we don't learn from the past. But that doesn't mean that history is an endless cycle. History has a beginning, Genesis 1. History has an end. And the purpose of all of history is for God's glory and the glory of his son. Throughout history, God is redeeming a people for himself, and there will be an end of that process see a cyclical view of history thinking that there is no point we're just on a hamster wheel is a hopeless point of view and an unbiblical point of view therefore if you place your identity in these things you will have no lasting hope but if you place your identity in what is eternal that is Christ you will not suffer loss. And that is the, the message of Scripture. I think as we go through Ecclesiastes, I felt this. I think you will too. The real tension that is in the book between a worldly worldview and a Christian worldview. As I read through this, I'll, re- I'll read his words and I'm like, oh, how does that comport with Scripture? And then i read a section after. I'm like, that's how. And it's like this constant tension. It's like, I don't, I don't quite understand, Solomon, what you're trying to convey to me. And then he will clear it up, or he will, at some points, just kind of leave you hanging until a different chapter. But what do we know? We know that Christians and non-Christians live in the same world. Right? We breathe the same air. We eat the same foods. We toil. We labor under the sun. Both Christians and non Christians work in our various gardens, and we fight with thistles and briars, the, the things of this earth that are hard. Both Christians and non Christians do this. But see, the worldview of the worldly man cannot ultimately find purpose or meaning in life because the things that the worldly man chases are things that are fleeting. He will continue to seek whatever he thinks will, will satisfy his heart. What, what it, he, he will pursue the things that he thinks are worth living and are worth working for. And the sad part is that Christians can do this very same thing. Christians can fall into the worldly worldview that uh, the pursuit of passions and, and pleasures are eternal, but they are not. If you do them for eternal reasons, then that is a good thing. But our struggle is to find meaning. Our struggle to find meaning does not mean that there is no meaning. There is meaning. So our, our struggle toward trying to find meaning does not mean that there is no meaning. There is always meaning. But when you struggle, it's meant to point you to Christ. Um, oh, I went over a little bit. Uh, we have any questions or comments before we end? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. i say vanity that wind, hmm. Yeah. And when we get there, I'm going to bring up that point that we're going to look back at verses 1 through 11, and Solomon talking about the wind, he says it blows to the north and to the south, and then it, it swirls back around, and you stand outside on a windy day, you'll feel the wind blow this way and that way. So it's like man chasing after this wind, he's running hard this way, and then it flips, and he's like, I've got to go back, and got to go back. So, so we're going to look at that, the, uh, the idea of man continually chasing after something that he cannot catch. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for being able to uh, study your word here in Ecclesiastes. We pray that we will lay these things up in our heart and that you will use these things to mold us into the image of your son, help us to pursue things that are eternal, not the things that uh, have no relevance toward uh, our purpose here on earth, which is to glorify and enjoy you forever. Uh, We now ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship. Help us to hear your word and to love and obey you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.